Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Thanks so much for listening in today. We have as our guest Cindy Parker, who's going to be talking about her passion for the land and culture and context of the Bible. And I think you're really going to enjoy this. Lynn Koek is going to be interviewing her. And uh, thank you to everyone who is uh, subscribing to us, wherever, on whichever platform you're listening. And if you could do us a favor and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, that's really helpful for helping this podcast get off the ground. We're still in our first year of this and would love to uh, connect what we're doing with uh, people who appreciate the context of the Bible. So um, thanks for your support. Thanks for listening. And we really hope you enjoy this episode. Well, I'm delighted today for the Biblical World Podcast to be talking with Cindy Parker, who just came out with a book, Encountering Jesus in the Real World of the Gospels, which is absolutely fantastic. And we're definitely going to dig into this, Cindy. Thanks so much for joining us. It is an honor to be here and talking with you. I have used your scholarship in so much of what I do. So it's just a pleasure to get to sit and chat about the land and women and all things Bible related. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you so much. In fact, I, I'd love to know how you fell in love with the biblical land of Israel. And uh, I know you take uh, tours there. And um, so we'll get into that. But first, just yeah, how, how did all this happen? How did you get to where you are now? <laughs> yeah, well, it's a very long and winding story, as many of us have long stories with unexpected turns. And for me, going to the land of the Bible, going to Israel-Palestine was a very unexpected turn in that I never planned on going. I never thought the Holy Land was the Holy Land. Like even just that vernacular was not something I grew up using and for me, Israel-Palestine was just part of the Middle East and not a part of the world that was at the top of my list to go travel to and visit until I was studying the Bible in seminary. And there was something that I was really missing that was about the realness of the people that I was reading about. So we were talking a lot about putting together theologies, like what do we think about any number of things, uh, systematic theology type ideas. And I wanted to know that people were real people who had real struggles because that was my experience in life. And we were having such grandiose conversations about these big, broad brushstroke ideas. And I, I was anxious for the humanity part. And so that's where uh, I had a professor tell me, go put your feet on the land and go for three weeks. And then I ended up going for a whole entire year, which was the best decision that I made. I finished my seminary training being on the land, which completely revolutionized the way that I was reading the Bible, understanding theology, 
uh, it made me realize all the different kind of Western assumptions I was bringing to the biblical text, which was so valuable. And I think because the impact of such a short amount of time in the the land, well, I ended up living there for several more years, but it was that immediate impact that made me fall in love with it. And then the fruit of exploring it, it just started, like I was just seeing all kinds of connections all over the place, which just brought an enormous amount of excitement into my biblical studies. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm like you. I uh, I had uh, finished my degree uh, in New Testament and had never been uh, to the land of Jesus where he grew up and ministered and died and rose again. And, and it just it was concepts, right? There was not reality. I remember I've been now a few times and I remember one time being there in the summer around Nazareth and thinking about walking to Sepphoris and it was blazing hot. And and I just thought, wow, yeah, Jesus was hot at different times, you know, and you don't, I mean, you hear that he's tired and hot as he sits down at the well and the Samaritan woman comes and talks to him. Uh, but, but to actually feel that and the smell, you know, when the earth gets really warm, that the plants and the trees put off a particular, I think, beautiful scent at times. And often it's a scent that reminds me of something. And so, yeah, just being there. And I have to confess when I first saw the Sea of Galilee, and this is, I, you kind of referenced this a bit in your, I, I saw Sea of Galilee. This is like a big pond. Oh my word. Yeah. These disciples all, you know, they're all upset at a storm that comes up. My word, you can swim one like the other, which, you know, was a very uncharitable reaction of mine, but, but it does kind of help you picture and, and it makes the stories come alive. What, what do you enjoy most now about guiding tours? Oh, there are so many things that I could talk about, but I think it is watching people have those experiences that you were just talking about. Uh, people's reaction to the Sea of Galilee is is very often that, like, is that it? Kind of <laughs> what? Yeah. I, yeah, I just thought this just was some big, big you know? thing. And this gets to one of the things that annoys me, like in biblical movie type things, the Sea of Galilee is always this big, vast ocean. And so people don't realize how how really small it is and how often you can stand at the side of the Sea of Galilee and see the entire perimeter of it. So I love giving people the correct images from the biblical writer's perspective. I think there's an incredible amount of theological payoff for giving them the right images of reading Psalm 23 in shepherding territory and reading Psalm 64 in a terrain in which you are dying of thirst and you're feeling the thirst in your mouth and in your throat. And and to, in those kind of contexts, talk about what does it mean for God to be living water? What is God as a shepherd? And it has 
huge payoffs in ways that people don't realize when they're just reading a black and white text at home. So I, I love getting people to the land and teaching them how to actually understand what the land is saying. Um, so not really pilgrimage, which is fine, but actually learning to read the land and the characteristics of the land is one of my all-time favorite things to do. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, and I think it brings home, and you alluded to this a bit earlier, um, talking about your seminary education, uh, we are not just brains on a stick, right? We we actually have bodies, and we will have glorified bodies uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. Um and and so walking where Jesus walked and where the apostles walked and where average people walked um, with all their pains and joys um, reinforces the re- the reality of of our embodied life. I bet you have some funny stories of uh, tour. Yeah, you can share one <laughs> or two have- with us. I have so I should write a book on funny things. And some of it is just because people are so overwhelmed because it's such a multi-sensory experience that they're not really thinking about what they're saying uh, or anachronistic things come out. So there's always lots of uh you know, is this the mosque where something something happened? I'll be like, "No, this is a synagogue that we're standing in." Or always lots of things related to Jesus and church and Western type ideas about Jesus that people say just because it's so ingrained in their minds that Jesus is a Christian and is somehow kind of this Western figure. And so they are. Yes. And I love the story that you gave of a student who whispered to you, did Jesus, when he was a child, worship in this church? And I thought, oh, I just started chuckling about how is she going to answer this one, you know? Yeah, there I mean there's a there's a the instinct is is good cuz cuz you do want to enter into the life of Jesus, but the question itself is <laughs> well, you you uh pull it apart for us. What what all is going on in that unfortunate question from a content standpoint? <laughs> this is actually so we were when that particular thing happened, we were sitting in Bethlehem and we were in this really gorgeous beautiful Roman Catholic church and connected to an orthodox church that is connected to the birthplace, the memory of the birthplace of Jesus. So we had just gone through all of that and the connection with King David in Bethlehem. And so, again, I think just being overwhelmed with all the experiences of the day, when that student leaned over, and I get this so much, and she's like, okay, why are we here again? Because this is the church Jesus went to. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) Jesus never went to church. Uh, So no, it's not that at all. And when he was a child, he grew up in Nazareth, not Bethlehem. So there's all kinds of displaced things. But I think she was just trying to find something beautiful to peg that moment on. And Bethlehem is actually home of a lot of those kinds of things. Uh, And when I'm done explaining Bethlehem and the birth of narrative, There was another time I had a group, it was a small group, and we were leaving Bethlehem, and I feel this tap on my shoulder, and this pastor said, Cindy, I have a problem. It's like, what's what's going on? He goes, well, when we get home, I'm scheduled to speak during our Advent, so pre-Christmas series, and I'm supposed to teach about the innkeeper in Luke chapter 2. 
And I was like, oh, that's unfortunate because there is no such thing as an innkeeper in Luke chapter two. And he's like, you've just ruined the Bible for me. And people say that a lot. And I always go, no, no, no. What I'm doing is I'm reworking and giving you the right kind of images for the Bible. So I'm ruining your assumptions about the Bible, but that's okay. But I, you know, I'm just helping you see the Bible on its own terms. Well, and you take them not to, not only to some of the uh, sites built later on top of uh, important uh, sites, but also to archaeological sites. And I'd be curious to hear some of the impressions that people have of the, when they see an archaeological site for the first time, what, what, maybe what wrong impressions do they come with and how do you help them? <laughs> There's a few different reactions. There are some people who come and because they're looking at the foundations of walls or the foundations of homes, there's not many clues that you're looking at. And sometimes you have multiple time periods that are simultaneously exposed one on top of the other. So it's like a weird puzzle you don't know how to put together. So I think to some extent, some people walk onto an archaeological site and they're not very impressed with what they see because they don't know how to understand it. So I think once you can get them onto the site and explain the stories that happen there and actually walk through the archaeological site as if it's a real living city, like these are the gates we would pass through. This is the sacred area where we would worship then I think people start to get really excited. But I think one of the assumptions that I like to try to correct as well, or at least enter into conversation with people about, is they think that archaeology is all fact. Like, ah, there's a lot about archaeology that's also interpretation. It's just you're working with material culture, but you still have to say, who who used that pot? Why is that pot broken? There's a lot of interpretation that goes on. So I always distinguish when we're looking at archaeology, the fact is the artifact, but the interpretation is what it means. And we have to be really careful about how we play those things together. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Well, your book, which is fabulous, Encountering Jesus in the world, Real World of the Gospels, great Chris, Christmas gift, oh, right? We're entering yes, into the holiday perfect. season. See, there you go. Just a little public service to our listeners there. And if Dr. Lynn Kohick says so, <laughs> everyone knows. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but it's a great book. Um, and and you you address these areas where people... People, they don't have an historical, political, a social context, as we've been talking about, you know, for Jesus's life. So you really walk us through from really starting with that big narrative of the Old Testament. Um, can you give us a quick summary of, of that meta story in the Old Testament and then maybe an example of why we really need that full picture in our mind when we look at Jesus's life? Okay, so you're talking to an Old Testament person <laughs> to give an Old Testament that's meta narrative. That's all right. We can still be friends. That, that's okay. We can still be friends. <laughs> uh, I think I saw that as a crucial place to start this New Testament-centric book because I've 
taught so many different groups of people in Israel or in an old, in a like gospels class, even in the States. And people want to just get to Jesus and talk about Jesus because they love Jesus and they just want to know more about Jesus. And I keep telling people, you can't really understand how explosive the New Testament gospels are until you understand the scripture they're connected to. And even the way that scripture has been edited and put together is is so important because the gospel writers and Paul are they're all pulling from the Hebrew Bible which is the Bible that they had and so they are explaining their time and place being able to look backwards on their timeline and say we've seen these patterns patterns of water separating of land becoming visible, of people passing in one direction through water, entering into new grand narratives. We've seen that narrative. We've seen that pattern so many times already. So when they're explaining Jesus passing through water and the blessing that is given to Jesus, and he passes into his the next big part of his ministry, it is speaking volumes to people in the original audience. And if we cut off that whole narrative of the Hebrew Bible, we're coming with, um, Sandy Richter likes to call it amnesia. We have this church amnesia because we just don't know what they're making reference to. And I think all the firework explosions, the majestic displays of who Jesus is, is most visible when you're connecting it to the parallel text in the Hebrew Bible. So I, I wrote this Old Testament overview kind of meta-narrative in order to show the development of patterns and how the patterns are creating a way to anticipate what God is going to do in the future because God has already proven himself in the past. And then to show how Jesus fits right, like super tightly and beautifully into that meta narrative. So that that's not exactly what you asked me to talk about, but that was kind of my reasoning behind doing it the way that I did it. No, and it's so effective. I love your statement. The land was not meant to be home to a world dominating empire, but home to a world influencing people. Ah, I just love that. And, and you then go from there to really describe the, the geography of Judea and Galilee, talking about the agriculture, um, and why the land doesn't support an empire, uh, that. But there's a, a theological truth as well in that distinction between a world dominating empire in a world influencing people. Can you can you unpack that a little bit as you describe what we should know our listeners uh hopefully someday they'll they'll be able to travel to Judea and Galilee but in the meantime that geography and agriculture. Yeah, there's something incredible again when you learn to read the land first because when you read the Bible the Israelites are the primary characters of their text and that makes sense. But because they are the like the main character, well, God is the main character, but they are the next primary character in this text. We 
imagine them then to be this world dominating kind of empire. We read them like an empire. And so when we read even of Solomon going out and conquering everything and there's peace on all sides, we really think of him as having conquered everything in the Near East, which is not true at all. And the land tells you that that is true. So the the big empires have to be supported by really good land resources. And those are going to be down south in Egypt and then to the northeast along the Tigris and Euphrates. And archaeology tells us that that is so. The historical text tells us it is so. They have the fertile land. They have the most abundant water resources. So the land itself can supply the type of food that will support an empire that can become cohesive. You can create communication systems to pull everyone together underneath a singular king. And then from there, they can go out and conquer the world. The land of the Bible is hilly, full of valleys, pulled apart by um, like these big rifts that are in the land. It is impossible to unify people in that land because the texture of the land pulls people apart, puts barriers in the way. They don't have reliable water sources. They have really amazing agriculture. The food there is amazing. But you're in danger every single year of experiencing a drought. So there's no consistent way to guarantee that an empire will grow and then thrive enough to support an army to go out of the boundaries of the land and conquer someone else. So the Israelites were always just going to be a small people in a small land. And Deuteronomy makes like very like Deuteronomy recognizes this from the very beginning, talking about how you're going into a place that is actually quite a vulnerable land. It's land that drinks water from heaven. But you're going to be in a land where people around you are going to see who you are and how you're behaving. And they will recognize that is your wisdom as a people group. So even the ancient writers un knew and understood they were not going to ever go out and conquer the world. Now, they tried to a certain extent when there were power vacuums, you know, everyone around them threw elbows and tried to get out to the roads so that they could earn more money. But that really is only possible when the big empires to the north and south retreat into their heartlands and kind of leave a power vacuum. But the land cannot support anything much larger than a fairly decently sized government. But that's it. Yeah. And yet significant things happen, which you point out, right? Even in that, in that space, you talk about how space preserves memory. Um, and I was thinking about, because you talk about Jesus's childhood in Nazareth, which is just a little basic town, but it looks out over places of memory that would have been part of Jesus's own story. Can you talk a little bit about that, those uh, memorialized places or places from uh, which you can uh, 
imagine Israel's history by looking out from Nazareth. This is one of those great benefits of reading the land, of getting to know the land. Is uh, And sometimes, and I would say even Bible atlases, put things in chronological order, and there's, which is valuable, and I really love that. But there's something about understanding how the land functions, that the primary roads are always going to go through the same location. And so once you kind of understand that, where the water is, where the food is, and you start mapping on the land all the different events, now it starts to make a lot of sense. And this is something I did not realize until I went there, that places, well, this places hold memory. That is very well proven, even just scientifically, that places hold on to memory for humans. And humans are also very forgetful. And humans need to have visuals on their horizon line all the time to, 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 to pull us back to the things that we should be thinking about. And so when there's a record of the way that God has interacted in the history of his people, and that record is visible on the horizon line, you can just be walking around and thinking about the next bartering session you're going into, or if you're going to get enough barley for the year. But when you see, for example, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal sitting together, and they're so dynamic on the landscape, like they don't blend into other hills. They are the hills. You suddenly remember oh, we have a covenant with a living God and there's blessings and curses related to the covenant. So when you talk about Jesus, there's so much about Jesus growing up years that we just don't know. The gospel writers don't tell us, which we would love to know more details about what that was like. But the land can tell you some things. So if you get just to the edge of where Nazareth is, your horizon line is immense. You can see all the way out to the Mediterranean Sea. You can see all the way east into the Transjordan. And you can stand there for an hour and map out other Israelite stories that happened in that area. And I think even just being able to point to Mount Carmel and to have conversations like, what are we supposed to learn from Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Why were there so many prophets of Baal in the land? Like, let's talk about that, right? Or even like being able to go to the other side of the valley and say, let's talk about that wise woman of Shunem. She was amazing. I love her. You know, but just what do we learn about her of hospitality, of recognizing who a man of God is, of having the gumption to ask for what she really wanted from Elisha. And, you know, you get to talk about these stories because it's right there on your horizon line for you to talk about. And so I just imagine Mary and Joseph or a local rabbi taking all the kids of the village out to this area where you can see everything and say, let's talk about our early judges but let's talk about Deborah. Why is Yael called a woman blessed above all others? Right? That's an interesting conversation. So I just think there's something about the horizon line and the preserved memories that 
anchor you to your historic narrative, to who you are, what your identity is, and what God has done to make himself known in the history of his people. Um, So kind of granting a sense of belonging. Yes. And you mentioned identity there. I'm thinking of You talk about this later when Jesus is now doing his ministry in Matthew 16, and he asks the question of the disciples, who do you say that I am? Which is um, such a powerful scene in in the life of Jesus and his uh, disciples. But it happens in Caesarea Philippi, and that location really matters. Like you've talked so far about the biblical history, but then there's another history on top of this, which is the Roman, much more recent, uh, the Roman history. Um, yeah, how does that, how does Jesus's question about identity fit in with the Jewish story, but also the Roman story? Yeah, it's, it's so fun because when you're paying attention to places, you realize all the way up until that point, Jesus has been in the political region of the Galilee. So he's been down by the Sea of Galilee. There is a large home, like a, there's just, it's it's a Jewish mindset down there. So there's something about the fact that he cho- he chose to leave that area that was primarily Jewish to go up to Caesarea Philippi which does not have an underlying Israelite story that is being preserved on that part of the hill. It's right at the base of Mount Hermon. It only has a Hellenized story that is preserved and preserved not just in the buildings, but in the gods and the way the gods were worshiped in that location, like stretching all the way back to Alexander the Great. So for 300 years, the narrative that's been preserved is a Hellenized story there. And so even just recognizing there's movement that he chose to go from the Sea of Galilee up to Caesarea Philippi to ask this purposeful question makes us as readers say, what is important about that location? So now we're standing in the middle of Rome and it, well, Figuratively. I, yeah, but very it, much so. A, I mean, it's a big, yeah. The, even the ruins are, it, it's big. You'd be impressed. Yes. Um, at yeah, the size and the dom, and the dominance then. It, it projects a dominance. Yeah. And everything about it is set up to represent Rome. It is like a mini Rome. It's take everything that Rome values and put it on the landscape in what we choose to build and how we choose to worship our gods, even to the point of having temples in the vicinity to Caesar himself, along with the pantheon of gods. So there's something about being able to stand in the middle of a, a city or a place that represents Rome, and then the dominance, like you said, of Rome, the power structure of Rome, and the worship structure of Rome and to say, who am I? Who am I in the midst of all of this? And as they kind of tease out this question and Peter comes up with his great, well, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. He's like, yes, you're right. But you don't understand the full complexity of that because then Jesus says, if that is true, I am going to go die on behalf of everyone. And so to make even that statement in the face of the way power and authority is on display 
in the city where they are standing is such a rich dichotomy between what God's kingdom is supposed to look like and what Roman, the Roman kingdom looks like. So going back to even the big picture idea of the place where the Israelites were located was not a world dominating place, but a world influencing place. And I think even in this conversation in Matthew 16, we see Jesus saying, me being Messiah is not setting you up to be a world dominating empire or getting rid of a world dominating empire, but you are going to be a world changing people. And for that to happen, I have to die. Yeah. Yeah. That is and so- I think it's just mind blowing. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, th- and they would have felt it. Uh, and seen it right up close with that. Yeah. Well, we were talking, um, Cindy, uh, just before Thanksgiving. So kind of heading into Advent and you've hinted already that you've ruined Advent for at least one pastor. Um, changed I, their visual. Right. Right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's just continue in that vein. But uh, when we uh, when we were talking about Advent, um, we certainly uh, Joseph plays a role, but really Mary kind of takes center stage. And you talk about women in Judaism, and you do spend time just unpacking the nativity scene. Can you do a little bit uh, of that for us now? The just what really was going on in Advent. Yeah, there there is something about the historic way that we have read and interpreted Advent through a European context moving over into a North American context. And we don't always realize all the different ways our picture of Advent has been changed by the way we've learned the story. And so now we have Christmas carols that have winter in them, that have holly in them, that have all of these things anachronistic to the actual event. So again, kind of thinking of Bethlehem, thinking of how big was Bethlehem at the time? And it was probably, I mean, it was a town, maybe not like a tiny village, but it's a town and it is primarily Jewish. And so it would have functioned with a Jewish within this Eastern Jewish mindset of hospitality. And knowing that people didn't have inns, they didn't have places of like where you pay people to stay overnight. Now, the Romans did. And so the Romans put little inns along the big primary Roman roads. And so therefore you can have an inn of sorts in Jericho, in the story of the Good Samaritan. But for a place like Bethlehem, they would have just relied on normal village hospitality where people care an awful lot about what your family name is. So I'm Cindy Parker. It would be Parker, daughter of Scott Parker, son of Walter Parker, son of, right? And that tracing of the genealogy would have meant everything. And so even if I walked into town, and I'm, I'm Cindy Parker, and no one knows me from anyone else, but they know my family name. They would say, oh, we actually know who you are because we know your family. And so you're welcome to come in. 
And we will like open our homes to you because you're a known person, not a dangerous person. So there is something about Mary and Joseph going to a place where Joseph has ancestral ties. That means when he walks into town and he says, I'm Joseph, son of, son of, son of, people go, okay, <laughs> like you can come stay with us because that's just who we are. And even just recognizing where Bethlehem is and throughout all of history, we could trace this through the Hebrew Bible as well. People who lived in the Bethlehem area are, they tended to be people who had agrarian ways of supporting life and shepherding ways of supporting life because they're right at the cusp of the wilderness. And at, in any given year, you can be facing a drought in which case it's beneficial for you to also have sheep and goats or another way to make a living. So the people of Bethlehem have a very long history of having both. And so it's not surprising that you have village people connected to Joseph who would have invited Joseph into their homes, who have areas inside their homes for their sheep and goats. Sheep and goats are not currently there because it's really hot and you don't want all that animal body heat in the house. So you send them out with the shepherds, the young kids out into the fields, which leaves a, a room in your house that is empty, that is not full of all the travelers who are coming in uh, to stay in Bethlehem to stay with their relatives. So it, there's also something about village mentality where the women would have taken care of each other. Like the women have that internal network of knowing who's sick, who needs help in the vegetable garden, who needs additional plant medicines, who needs like whatever, right? So they would have known Mary is pregnant. It's the day of Mary given birth. Where are the midwives? Send the midwives to Mary, you know, and everyone would have been gathered around in this house yet taking care of each other as they do when you read it properly, historically and culturally. And I adore that picture because it makes the birth of Jesus not an isolated event where he's been kicked out of the community, but one of bringing him in and putting him right in a sense of belonging into the middle of a community. When we lived in, um, in Kenya, we, uh, had a chance to go see some uh, Maasai homes and communities, and their homes were structured a little bit like how you're describing, where they had a part of their home that was for their goats and their sheep. It protected them, I mean, literally from lions, <laughs> uh, and their livestock was very important to them. Um, and then through that was where the family lived. And uh, I, re I recall one time talking about this in one of my uh, undergrad classes, and there was an African student that was present, and one of the American students, presumably from suburbia, uh, when she was imagining, and maybe even that there was a sheep or goat, you know, there in that um, sort of the barn side, if you will, of the of the house or the room for the animals, she got very worried. Well, wouldn't wouldn't the goat like hurt or eat Jesus? And, and the African had a chance to set her fears at rest, that there would not be that kind of uh, danger 
that lurked uh, for Jesus. But uh, my point is just that there are cultures even today that have a similar way of organizing their daily life uh, that that we can learn from and and help us imagine what what Jesus would have faced. And I also so appreciate how uh, you've set the record straight that uh, often when we tell the the nativity story, the the Jews, ironically, it's talked like that, the Jews become the bad guys. And nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing at all. Jesus uh, was, uh, his parents were welcomed into a Jewish family and, and he was born into a circle of love. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it helps us also, I, when you were telling the story of the Maasai, it makes me think of how we need these kinds of experiences or for people to talk about them because we have certain views of sanitation. Like usually people are like, it would smell. I'd be like, but that is your family fortune walking around on four legs. <laughs> like it's not like an invisible amount of money in a banking system, right? So you're going to protect it and pull it in as much as you can. Like so different types of priorities. But yeah, I think it's so important to recognize that Jesus was in a Jewish family and that he was in a culture that valued and honored family and tradition and narrative and identity. And, and he fit within that and he wasn't breaking that. No, no, not at all. Um, if we fast forward to the end, uh, the passion week, um, which you spend a lot of time talking about that. And one of the things that you do that I love is you talk about the Maccabean revolt so we've talked about the Old Testament and we've talked now about the New Testament, but there's this, some people call it the intertestamental period or early Judaism or second temple Judaism, these couple of hundred years where God is not silent, right? You make that point very, very well, but there's a lot of things that are going on that also help us make sense of what Jesus says and how disciples react. Can you say just a little bit about what the Maccabean revolt was and then the Hasmonean kingdom as you kind of lead us into Passion Week? Oh, it's so, it's so beautiful. And another one of those lessons I didn't learn until I was there. And I was tracing stories on top of the ground instead of chronologically. And so as I was studying the archaeology of Jerusalem and trying to put together the time periods uh, and the the history of the city itself. Who was there? When were they there? Why was it important? All of a sudden, I started interacting with new narratives that I wasn't as familiar with. And although everyone living over there is very familiar with it, it was just, it was an absent narrative in the way I had been told stories. And suddenly I was meeting people like the Jews that are coming out of exile from Babylon, rebuilding the city and starting to talk about and think through what kinds of conversations they were going through to prove their identity as God's people. When is that threatened by different emperors coming in from the outside? And then the Maccabee family is one that throws out this imposing external 
overlord, great king, who was messing with and basically trying to obliviate their memory of an identity with God as a unique people different from surrounding nations. And so the Maccabees are all part of that, like reestablishing of identity for people, Jewish people in the land, in their historic land. So that's where it's all really important. And then you start reading about their festivals. So when they retake Jerusalem, rededicate the temple, the celebration of Hanukkah, and how they did it in particular. So reading in Second Maccabees about the celebrations that they had where they're borrowing, uh, they're borrowing symbols from past festivals, uh, Sukkot in particular, the, the festival just prior. And so palm branches and they're singing psalms and they're rejoicing because God has given their leaders favorship so that they could retake Jerusalem and retake the temple. So taking it, reading this part of the literature in combination with the Hebrew Bible and the patterns that are all through the Hebrew Bible, reading how the Maccabees interpreted their actions in line of the patterns of the Hebrew Bible. When you get to Jesus coming in over the mountain on Passover, a celebration etched into Israelite and Jewish memory as one where God overthrows really significant empires. Rome is standing in Jerusalem governing the city. And Jesus comes in, and when the gospel writers tell us, and people start waving palm branches and singing the Psalms, there is echoes of what happened when the Maccabees had already won back Jerusalem and they go in to dedicate the temple. And so you can see the crowd of people watching Jesus come in and they say, let's do the same thing. We're winning back the city. So they're making this huge political claim during this religious time, we're remembering God overthrows empires. Rome is currently in charge. Let's reenact what happens when God overthrows empires in the way that the Maccabees did a century or a little plus prior. And I think it's like it, immediately in the biblical text, you have Pharisees and leaders of the people saying, you better tell people to be quiet. Yeah, and I think it's not because they're waving palm branches. It's because they're reenacting something that had been a military victory in their past. And the leaders of the people know how dangerous of a statement the crowd is making. And you make the great point. I love your point, uh, in part because I agree with it, <laughs> truth be told, um, that the crowd that welcomed Jesus is not the same crowd that called uh, for uh, to Pilate to crucify. I think it's so important that people realize we're talking about two different things. Um, we have otherwise it, it it dulls the impact both of what you said and then of uh, Good Friday. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And again, it, that's another one of the follow the archaeology, right? And archaeology will tell you where the wealthy people lived and where the priests were and where the governors, the Roman governors were. And so you just have to follow that. And when you retrace Jesus's steps and the judgment scenes, given that archaeology, you suddenly say, 
or you suddenly realize that was a very small footprint in an, in a very like side. It's not center in Jerusalem. It's on the far edge of Jerusalem, which means there's a lot of people in the city who have no idea what's going on. Yes. Well, and um, we're coming, unfortunately, our time is going so fast. We're kind of coming to the end of our time. We have I, so much more to talk about. I know. Well, that's why people have to get the book, Encountering Jesus in the Real World of the Gospels. But before you go, I, I would love to hear, because you share a little bit about this in the book, your own story of living that Friday to Sunday passion story in Jerusalem as it's experienced now. Talk about a slow pace. And uh, that, that uh, I wanted to hear more. Yeah. Another benefit of being and moving around in the real places where events happened is it takes you out of when you're reading a black and white text. And I'm really glad we have it. So this is not against like having the Bible, but I just, there is something about in one verse. Jesus dies in the next verse he raises from the dead. I mean, it's not quite exactly like that, but it's, you're, you're just reading small bits and it, it takes you two minutes to get from the crucifixion scene to the resurrection scene. And so you're not forced to live through the uncomfortable blackness and, and, time of doubt and questioning that had to have been there. And there was something for me about living in Jerusalem and year after year, you can walk the whole passion narrative within the real time space of a week. So thinking Jesus was in Jerusalem for a week. So you can walk down the Mount of Olives. It's super easy and really quick, you know, on one Sunday and then on different days, you can actually go to the places where Jesus shows up. So you're living in, in modern time, the story in their real time. And I think when I started doing that for the first time and thinking about the, like, the horrific nature of realizing the one you were so excited about restoring your kingdom and restoring the city and the temple back to your people is dead. Like that Friday, no one's anticipating a resurrection. And so it makes you sit for more than 24 hours in a, am I wrong? Did I make a mistake? Is Jesus who he really said he was? Is Rome actually the most powerful power on the world stage? And it it makes you deal with these. Yes. You know, and you're sitting there, at least the uh, first disciples, on Shabbat where no one's working, right? So it it is a special holy day, which forces the issue maybe even more. God, where are you? I think of the, the women who have to wait before they can go and anoint the body of their Lord, you know, and, and mourn the way they want to mourn. They're, they're at home, but they're focused on this is the, this is the day the Lord has set aside. I've, I've always wondered what, what kinds of questions and thoughts they would have had, uh, and what comfort maybe they would have taken that this is 
Sabbath. God is still there. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway. And even did they read the the Psalms of Lament? Did they say those things together? You know, there's there's something about, there's all these deep, rich emotions that are present in the Bible. But if we don't want to deal with them, we can skim over the top of them, right? And I think that reading like the passion narrative in time and place forces you to go, what do we do with this kind of doubt and depression and sorrow? Like, let's not hurry up and get to the resurrection. Although I will say, when you do, so this like walking patiently through the narrative is something all the Orthodox churches do over there. And when you go to the Orthodox celebration of Passover, it is the most majestic celebratory service I've ever been in. And then when you go to the Protestant ones and they've not been paying attention to the sorrow of Saturday, you're like, oh, it's nice because it's still a powerful story, but it's a nice story. And in the Orthodox churches, I'm always blown away saying that is the most powerful impact that Christianity can have on the world. Like <laughs> That is amazing. That, that power of the resurrection. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Cindy, thank you so much. And what a great note to, to end on. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your, your wisdom and opening up even in, in this time, uh, the world of, of the Bible, the world of the, of the gospels. I encourage everyone. It, it just came out this year, hot off the presses, encountering Jesus in the real world of the gospels. And thanks so much, Cindy, for spending some time with us here on the biblical world. Oh, thank you. It's been an honor. You're one of my favorite scholars when it comes to what were women doing? How is the New Testament shaped? So it's an honor to be invited to be here with you today. So thank you very much. You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study slash donate. Until next time, keep digging.